Jesus' first words in this passage are, seem to be a reaction to uh, what's been going on. At the beginning of chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison, and this is not what John says, but what Matthew says. He said that John is in prison, and he's heard about the deeds of the Messiah or the deeds of the Christ. And Jesus responds to that. And then he turns to the crowd to, to talk to the people about John and what John ultimately represented. And Jesus is not really satisfied. The people as a whole have not responded appropriately to the things that they've seen and heard. And Jesus refers to this generation, and he, he sizes up this generation as those who refused to dance when John the Baptist and then Jesus proverbially played the flute. And they didn't mourn when John the Baptist and then Jesus sang a lament. But then Jesus turns his attention to some other people. And in Matthew eleven twenty eight, we hear Jesus calling. He calls out to the weary and the burdened. Jesus knows our condition. We see him time after time having perfect insight into the condition and the situation and the heart and the struggles of people right where they are. And he cared deeply for them in that situation. And he then was more than willing and deeply compassionate to offer himself and, and reaching out to them to offer his amazing power to help them, to meet them at their point of need. So what does Jesus mean when he talks about being weary and burdened? And why is it that people end up in this condition? In verse 28, we have Jesus using a verb to be burdened, or another translation may be to, to be loaded. And then he uses a noun where it talks about a burden or a load. And if we turn to Matthew 23, verse 4, we hear Jesus describing, really criticizing the scribes and Pharisees, and he uses that word. He says, They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. The Jewish leaders were guilty of putting an oppressive yoke and an oppressive burden on the people and then offering no help or no real burden, uh, no real mercy to them. So to be weary and to be burdened is when you feel that crushing weight of a load on you that is too, too much for you to pull, too much for you to carry, and too much for you to handle on your own. So what, how was it really when we dig down into that, how is it they were doing that? Well, first of all, they were putting a crushing weight of expectations on people. See, the scribes and the Pharisees, they inherited and enforced a group of man-made rules that Jesus referred to as the tradition of the elders in Matthew 15 too. And these rules were supposedly intended to sort of protect uh, God's word and ensure that people kept and respected God's word. But in actual fact... There were cases where this man-made tradition actually undermined God's word, actually caused people to disobey the actual word of God. And they introduced also and reinforced a sort of pressure cooker environment, both for these man-made rules, but also even for the commands of God. And so therefore, that led to the crushing weight of condemnation that they put on people, whether it was for breaking one of these man-made rules or whether it was actually breaking a legitimate command of God, there seemed to be a no-mercy policy for these people. It seemed that the religious leaders were quick to reject people, 
and to, to give a final verdict. There seemed to be this strict intolerance for any failure and a quickness to cast people out, to cast a stone, or to write people off. And, you know, Jesus spoke of one instance where he talked about we need to remove the log from our own eye before we even reach out to remove the speck from somebody else's eye. It seems like the attitude of these Jewish leaders sort of turned Jesus' perspective on its head. It's as if they were saying, we don't even have a speck in our eye, but we see huge logs in the eyes of others. And we had the severest criticism for those logs. And in fact, we'd have the severest criticism even if it was a speck in your eye. Have you ever found yourself feeling that crushing weight? Maybe it was the crushing weight of expectations, whether it were man-made expectations, or even the way that people seem to apply the, the genuine expectations of God to your life. Have you ever felt the crushing weight of condemnation when you failed to live up? Or maybe you, if you're like me, you know what it's like to really be on both sides of that. Sometimes it's been the way that I've related to family or friends or to people out there in the world. I think I've been guilty of putting a crushing weight of expectations and leveling a crushing weight of condemnation because of a failure of people to live up to those expectations. Not only was it the crushing weight of expectations and the crushing weight of condemnation, but then thirdly, there was the crushing weight of unrelieved human need because of the way that the scribes and Pharisees were applying this, these expectations to others. In Matthew chapter 15, we saw where the man-made rules actually kept people from honoring their father and their mother like God had actually asked them. And it was actually under the appearance of devoting resources to God as an act of worship. And yet God wanted them to, to take care of their father and mother in need and thereby honor them and therefore truly honor God. And so the parents were not being properly cared for. But then there's also a couple of instances in Matthew chapter 12 where there's a, a legitimate command of God, where God had told the people to keep the Sabbath holy, and yet the way that they had interpreted led to, uh, again, disregarding some ways in which God was ask, actually wanting them to care for one another. And so there's a time where Jesus either approves of or either facilitates the meeting of human needs in a way that sort of puts in check what the Pharisees and Sadducees and other religious leaders were trying to do. There was the case where the disciples were hungry, and they're going through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and they need something to eat. And so they rightly grab some of the grain from the field to satisfy that hunger. And yet the Pharisees and the religious leaders were right there to condemn him. Or there, there's, there's the case when Jesus goes into the synagogue, and there's the man with the withered hand, and Jesus intentionally calls him forward so he can encourage him and then also heal him. And again, the religious leaders find fault with Jesus. Yet whether it was through setting up a man-made commandment or misrepresenting the intent of God's actual commands, Jesus shows that this leads to the crushing weight of human needs going unattended and unrelieved. And he couldn't stand for it. He called them to change. Now, what I was thinking about, is there a contemporary example of this? And I think there may be multiple ways this can happen. So pardon me for speaking somewhat vaguely, but I think there's a lot of times that people will say, just preach the gospel and don't get involved in trying to change the world. And in fact, if we truly preach the gospel and embrace the gospel and go live the gospel, we're going to have to care about human needs out there. So sometimes I think we get the goals right. We have a kingdom of God goal. And then sometimes we try to preach the gospel 
and yet we sort of ignore and, and neglect maybe some of the outcomes or some of the commitments that God would ask us to make out there in the world. There was a time where I had an opportunity and felt challenged to go um, visit an abortion clinic. I'd heard about people going and doing ministry. Of course, I'd heard good stories, and I'd heard horror stories of how that was handled. And I think you saw an example of both of those, those types of things happening. On the one end, you had people out there opposing any kind of Christian witness. And so they sort of were against the goals of the kingdom of God for life. And yet, you had other people out there who had the right goal to, to plead with people, to spare life. And yet, there was a guy out there, he had a, a PA system that was directed towards the, towards the abortion clinic, and he was literally screaming into the microphone. And I was just like, what do you do? What's a faithful witness look like? I think on the one hand, it would say, yes, let's stand up for life. Let's find a way to minister to people. And yet, on the other hand, I think it has to be a way in which it's consistent with the gospel. And so that's maybe one challenge. But not only are those, those three crushing weights, I think, something that's evident as we look at the way Jesus wants to minister to the weary and burden, but there's something that's relevant for all of us, and it really stands behind all of this. It's this crushing weight of our own corrupt spiritual circumstances. We all are guilty before God. All of us, through our own real rebellion, against God's righteous words and ways have plunged ourselves into death and guilt before God. And yet, there is hope for us in all of these situations. The good news is that the Christ steps into these crushing weight and crushing conditions and offers himself to us. This is the one that, as I said at the very beginning of chapter 11, it says, John had heard about the deeds of the Christ and John himself was beginning to doubt, is this the one who is to come? And Jesus, instead of answering him directly, yes, I am the Christ, this is his answer to the messengers that are sent from John. He says in verse 4, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf here, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus, is, his actions and his overall ministry are screaming, Yes, I am the Christ who is to come. I am the one who fulfills all of those prophecies. And, and many people see there uh, some very obvious references to multiple places in Isaiah. Isaiah 29. Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61, this is the spirit-anointed king who's come to deliver God's people, and yet to deliver them in a, in a greater way, in a deeper way, in a way that defies maybe the expectations that they had, including maybe John had. John apparently saw some, uh, a, a redeemer, a king, a Christ who was going to come in and just throw the hammer down immediately. And make no mistake, there's going to be a time when there is severe judgment meted out by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But this is a season of mercy. This is a season in which if we'll recognize our need and come to him, he will give us rest. And that leads me to one of my points here. When Jesus says at the beginning of the passage that Steve read for us, he talked about the wise and learned versus the little children. Grant Osborne's a guy that I, I read some last week when I was looking at and studying this passage, and he said we basically should see a parallel there to 
Remember when Jesus said back in chapter 9 how he had come to call the righteous? He'd come, to, he'd come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And he said we should sort of expand that out to hear what he's really saying. It's not that he's saying that the Pharisees and Sadducees aren't sinners. He said basically what he's saying is, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. And so when we move to our passage for today, it's almost as, as if Jesus is saying, I've hidden these things from those who think they are wise and learned, but rather I'm revealing them to little children, those who know they need me, those who know that I am the Christ who God has sent into the world, those who know that they need what I have to give them. And so if we'll hear that call, and if we recognize that we're little children, if we come to him, if we say, yes, Lord, we'll put ourselves under your authority. We'll depend upon you. We'll, we'll look to you. We'll learn from you. We'll put our whole lives in your hands. And he'll say, he says, yes, I will give you rest. He's a generous Savior. He's a Savior who describes himself in verse 29 as gentle and humble in heart. He won't turn you away. He won't, won't turn me away. He won't turn any away who are willing to acknowledge their need. And so I acknowledge my need this morning. And you can acknowledge your need this morning. And you can rest assured that his invitation is strong and sure and certain. What's the rest that Jesus gives? Well, it's not primarily physical rest, although that may have a lot to, to, and to help with that. It's... Lifting that crushing weight. Have we failed God? Have we sinned against him? Yes, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so Jesus will speak a word of forgiveness to us. To remove the burden and the guilt of every sin, of every shortcoming, of every failing, of every act of rebellion. But not only that, he'll give us his very power to live the life that he's calling us. It's sort of a paradox here. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for, for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Some people look at the teaching of Jesus and say, it looks like he actually ratchets it. He puts the ratchet up rather, rather than raises it down. Because whereas it seemed God only cared about just simply not murdering others, but then Jesus actually revealed that God said, I want the heart as well. I'm concerned about the anger that leads to murder. And so that, too, is accountable to God. And so it seems like then when he talks about other things like lust and other things, he, it's like he, he gets deeper into our lives. And yet, even though that may be true, he offers us far more than the scribes and Pharisees could have offered us. Because just like John said at the very beginning of his ministry as he introduced Jesus. He says, this one that's coming after me, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so Jesus is not only going to offer us pardon for our sins, but he's going to offer us power. Power through the gift of the Holy Spirit. But then there's something I think that is present here as well. You see, a yoke, most of the time, indicated two animals being connected side by side with this wooden beam. So if I'm in one side of the yoke, who's in the other side? 
I think the implication is, is that Jesus is in the yoke with us. He's going to pull us along. He's going to be there. He's going to be the one encouraging us and, and keeping that calling ringing in our ears when we get ready to give up and when we cannot carry the load on our own. He's going to say, come to me in that gentle and humble-hearted voice. He's going to say, I will give you rest. And he will continue to whisper that into our hearts and begin to build that faith. And we'll begin to trust that he's with us, helping us along the way. He's beside us in the yoke. And so we can put ourselves under his authority, under his teaching, knowing that he's going to be right there beside us and he's going to impart his very life and power to us through the same Holy Spirit that he walked every minute of his earthly ministry in. And then we can know that we can have victory. But not only that, friends, we know that there are people in our lives, we've felt that weariness and that burden, but we also know there are people in our families, across the street from us, at work, and in other places that we sense their walking and weariness and great burden. How can we offer them hope? Well, I think Jesus wants us to be a sign and a witness with them. He wants to reproduce his lowly, humble heart in us so that we can relate that humble, lowly heart of his to others where we are. There is a, a great thing that I came across a number of years ago, and it's called the Sower's Creed. It was written by J.D. Walt. And in it, he was trying to convey this sense of what Christ wants for us, how he wants us to be a sign of his hope in the world. And I think it very much reflects some words that Jesus had said at the end of chapter 10, where Jesus says in verses 40 through 42, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. This is what J.D. Waltz wrote and invited others to make as their confession. He says, Today I stake everything on the promise of the Word of God. I depend entirely on the power of the Holy Spirit. I have the same mind in me that was in Christ Jesus. Now listen to this. Because Jesus is good news and Jesus is in me, I am good news. Now that couldn't be true unless the, the things before that are true about staking everything on the promise of the Word of God, depending entirely on the power of the Holy Spirit, and therefore because of that having the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. But think of that. This week... As we have, in a fresh way, or maybe for some of us the first time, answered the invitation of Jesus to come to him, to put ourselves under his authority, but also trusting in that encouragement that he walks alongside of us, that the one who himself is the good news is in us, and therefore we can be good news in his name. Are you weary and burdened this morning? Crushed by a weight of expectations? Crushed by a weight of condemnation? maybe crushed 
by circumstances that haven't been relieved because somebody else has misunderstood or misrepresented what God expects. Or maybe you know others who are in that situation. Let's come to him this morning. Let's come to him just like the leper came to him, who kneeling at his feet said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I am willing. And then he demonstrated that he could by healing the leper. Or we come like the woman with the issue of blood. If I could just touch the hem of his garment, he'll make me well. And sure enough, she touched him and his healing power came into her life. Or like the friends bringing the paralyzed man to Jesus. And they they couldn't get in the front door, so they made a, a top door and came down. And before they could even ask Jesus for something, as Dane Ortland said in his book, Jim and Lowly, Jesus' words just tumbled out, words of forgiveness. That's what he wants for us today. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are gentle and lowly, humble in heart. And you said you will give rest for our souls if we come to you. We come broken and needy. Lord, we've given in to sin. We've followed the voice of the devil at times rather than your precious and holy and righteous voice. Jesus, please forgive us. Remove the yoke of our condemnation. Remove the yoke of that crushing weight that's over us. And yet, Lord, help us to realize we're not to be free of a yoke, but we're to accept your loving and light yoke, your light burden. Not because your expectations are lower, but because you are the Christ, the mighty one who will stand beside us in the yoke and who will give us the very same Holy Spirit that anointed you at your baptism and in which you lived every moment of your life and ministry. So we thank you, Lord. Come and help us experience the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins through your blood shed for us. Help us to know the power of your resurrection. Help us to have your compassion so that we'll see others who are weary and burdened and we will go in your name, trusting in you and following you so that your humble heart will come through in ours. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We ask all this in your holy name and all God's children said, amen.